Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. You know, I'll do interviews and people say like, oh, do you have your dream job? And I'm like, no, because when I was dreaming of jobs, who thought you could make a living talking about fake football on the internet? Today's guest on the Cuse Conversations alumni podcast is one of the best known, most respected voices in the world of fantasy sports. He is Matthew Barry, better known as the talented Mr. Roto. Barry earned a bachelor's degree in producing for electronic media from Newhouse in 1992. He's made quite the career for himself as a senior fantasy sports analyst at ESPN. At a time when fantasy sports were starting to rise in popularity, Barry seized on the opportunity and has been helping fantasy owners set their lineups ever since. He's a member of not one, but two halls of fame dedicated to fantasy sports, and he's our proud guest here on the podcast. Matthew, thanks for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's always, it's always great. Go Q's always great to connect with a fellow orange alum who's achieving success out there. And clearly I gave you the hubris of that introduction, but is it surreal sometimes to think about this career that you've carved for yourself in fantasy sports? It's very surreal. You know, it's interesting when I talk to college students, I've come back to Syracuse a couple of times over the years. And when I talk to kids there or at other places, you know, uh, I always, one of the things I always mention is I said, when I was in college, when I was at Syracuse, like this job didn't exist. You know, I'll do interviews and people say like, oh, do you have your dream job? And I'm like, no, because when I was dreaming of jobs, who thought you could make a living talking about fake football on the internet, right? And so, you know, I mean, like, and that's that's an advice I give to college kids is like, you know, follow what you love, follow your passion. Because again, when I was at Syracuse, you know, very few people, you know, fantasy sports wasn't particularly popular. Um, it was very niche. And the idea that you could make a full-time living, let alone a good living, uh, talking about it, analyzing it, providing content around it was, you know, unfathomable back when I was in college. Now it's been quite a while since I've been uh, back at Syracuse as a student, but still, um, yeah, it is a little surreal. Honestly, I, it's, I still pinch, a, a pinch myself that, uh, you know, I get to be on TV and, um, you know, get to write for a big website or have my own podcast on a popular com- for a popular company. Again, just talking about fake football. It is. It's really unbelievable to think about how this has, you know, morphed into this. It's a multi-million, multi-billion dollar industry. People are on their phones all the time. Everybody wants the feedback. They love your love hate column. It seems like there's so many ways to get fantasy sports. What what can you point to as the nexus for this explosion in the industry? Was there a moment? Was there something when it all started to click together that, boy, there's really an interest and a demand for this? It felt like more like a slow build than some sort of overnight sensation. It was, I feel like it was more of a slow build. I mean, there's a couple of sort of, you know, touch points that I can, that I can look to sort of along that, that growth curve. Um, one of them, honestly, is ESPN. You know, ESPN hired me in 2007 full time. And the very first job that I had with the company was I was uh, my title was actually director of fantasy sports, ESPN senior director of fantasy sports. And how they explained the role to me uh, here was that I was to be a cheerleader, that I was to be a uh, an advocate for fantasy football, not only to our fans in a public facing manner, 
but also internally as a cheerleader internally explaining to a lot of the stakeholders, you know, cause not, at that time, not every sports center producer played fantasy sports, not every NFL live producer played fantasy football, et cetera, et cetera. Not every radio producer and it's going to the producers of every show of going to the people in charge of various areas of content for the company and saying like, Hey, this is what fantasy sports is. This is why it's important to our fans. This is why it, you know, it, it's a potential revenue stream for the company. And so I think just ESPN, a major media company like ESPN getting behind it uh, in the way that it did and putting, you know, somebody like me on TV that wasn't, you know, some ex NFL athlete that didn't know anything about fantasy sports, but was just sort of, you know, given a piece of paper saying like, oh, this guy might be good for your fantasy team or whatever for all you fantasy guys out there. Like they were like, no, 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 here's one of you. Like here's a here's somebody that is a born and bred, you know, played fantasy sports since I was 14 years old. So once ESPN got into it, I think then you saw other major media companies sort of follow suit, the NFL and Major League Baseball and some of these sports leagues that for years sort of held it at arm's length that said it might be too close to gambling. Is it some form of sports gambling, which it isn't? Um, But they they held it at arm's length for a long time. And then eventually after they saw ESPN and and myself – um, sort of like really championing this and, and talking about it openly and and in a positive manner, they sort of got on board and they realized, oh, this is something that can help our fans and also help drive revenue and interest. There was a study that came out in the New York Times that showed that the average football fan watches about three hours of uh, football a week, but the average fantasy player watches over six hours a week. And when the NFL saw that and they saw ESPN, they were like, oh, hey, maybe we should, instead of pushing it away, maybe we should actually embrace it. And then all of a sudden you started seeing fantasy commercials for the NFL on games. And so those things, I think, were all big catalysts. Uh, obviously, the advent of the Internet a little bit earlier than that, you know, um, was a big thing as well. You know, 95, that era where so suddenly stats wouldn't ha- you didn't have to keep stats by hand. You could follow games along live and there was a system online to keep track of your teams and your draft and your statistics. And so. Those that was obviously, you know, something that helped bring it to the forefront, major media getting behind it also in a big way. But it's more of a more of a slow growth, I feel like, than any one uh, big particular instance. You must get all sorts of requests, questions, advice. Run the gamut for us. What are some of the how how do people approach you and, and how often are you approached for fantasy advice outside of your column? All the time, you know, you know, all day, every day. Uh, you know, any which way they can try to reach me, right? You know, like uh, they, they, you know, they email me, they tweet at me, they slide into my DMs, you know, like, <laughs> like requests. I get, you know, like I have a, like, you know, I've been at the company, I've been at ESPN now for over 15 years. Um, and, you know, if, uh, if for some reason, I, and I've, you know, I've, you know, multiple years left on my contract, but if for some reason I ever left ESPN, like I, I feel pretty good about, you know, sort of where I am in the space and like, I feel like I'd find another job. So I don't really need a LinkedIn, right. You know, I'm not kind of look, looking for my next <laughs> Mine is the kind of job that you don't find on LinkedIn anyway, but whatever, I have a LinkedIn and then people will like send me LinkedIn requests. And it's just like, you know, and it's somebody that's like, you know, like whatever the office manager of like a, you know, of like a Home Depot in Wyoming and like no disrespect to Wyoming or Home Depots or office managers, but you know, it's not nothing that I have really in common with that person professionally. 
and they'll be like, yeah, hey, man, I'm just a big fan. By the way, like uh, at my flex spot this week, you know, or are you thinking Giovanni Bernard or Mike Davis, you know, or whatever it is, right? You know, <laughs> you think Matt Breed is going to play and you're, you know, and you're just like, wow, the, you know, the thirst is real. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll be out in public and, um, you know, I'll be with like my kids or something like that. And I've, I've had people follow me into like a public restroom. I've had people, you know, interrupt my dinner with my kids or something like that. Or like, uh, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really insane. I'll, um, I remember one time I was at a Super Bowl party and, um, and so I'm at, I'm at this Super Bowl party and I'm there with my wife and this, uh, this person comes up and uh, she's a PR person. She says, Hey, Matthew, I'm a big fan. And, uh, I have the Maxim hometown hottie of the year with me. And would you mind taking a picture? You know, could we, you know, for the magazine, would you mind taking a picture with, you know, this woman, the, the, the maximum hometown hottie of the, of the year. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And so, you know, my wife is fine with it. So um, it's like a day party around the pool. Right. And so, so anyway, they bring her over and we're like, Oh, so do you want this to be like a candid photo or do you want it just, you know, like us, you know, do you want a pose photo, like whatever. And, um, and so she's there um, and she's like in a, you know, very skimpy bikini. Um, you know, she, she looks the part of the maximum hometown hottie of the year. And, uh, and I'll never forget this. So as we're sitting there talking there, it's, it's me and her, and it's the maximum PR person. It's my wife. And all of a sudden, um, uh, this guy pushes her out of the way and literally like pushes her out of the way and says, Matthew Berry, oh my God, I got to ask you. Like, and he has a fit. And I'm like, there's literally like a, like a half naked woman right here. You know what I mean? Like, and you're anyway, I mean, like, so, uh, you know, I, I was, and she, it was, uh, you know, we talked about it afterwards. We, we, we joked about it. Like, um, she was like, well, that's never happened to me before. You know, she's, she never had some guy like try to push past her to get to <laughs> talk to a dude. Um, so yeah, the, the, uh, the fantasy question thirst is, uh, is very real. <laughs> that's crazy. And, and to think about what people are prioritizing when you got this beautiful woman, and a yeah. fantasy expert, their matchup must really mean a lot that week for the flex spot. Hundred percent. I, I mean, it was. Uh, uh, and so I've just I've seen um, I've just seen a bunch of crazy stuff like that. Where um, you know I did an episode of the league, and um, uh, which is you know it was a sitcom on FX. I don't know if you've seen the episode, but in the in the episode, um, in essence, one of the characters on the show. For people who've never seen the show, it's about a fantasy football league. It was it's a comedy that was on FX. It's now on Netflix. It's really funny. Highly recommend watching it. Um, definitely adult humor. But uh, anyway, so the, the the particular episode that I'm in, it's uh, season three, episode three, if you're looking for it. Uh, but anyway, they uh, the premise is one of the characters, Kevin, basically discovers me in a bar, and um, and he basically tries to pick me up. And so you know, there's a line in the scene there where Kevin says to his buddy Taco, he says, Matthew Berry is the prettiest girl in this bar and I'm going to go hit on him. <laughs> and, so, and so he comes over and he hits on me um, trying to get fantasy advice. And so the, the episode then goes on from there in terms of our relationship and how that, that works out. But um, the funny part is, is so that uh, Jeff and Jackie Schaefer, who are the creators in the executive producers of the league and they're friends of mine, longtime friends of mine, they wrote that episode because they had been out in public with me and they saw, you know, just sort of what happens uh, when people, you know, recognize me or figure it out and just sort of the, 
the fantasy thirst as it was. So that that episode came out of a real life experience that Jeff and Jackie had with me when we were out one night. It was great to see how close to real life, Matthew, that that seems to be when it comes to the obsession that people have with fantasy sports. You mentioned earlier you started this uh, sport, being in fantasy sports, and you were 14 years old. What drew you to fantasy sports in the first place? Listen, I was a nerdy kid, honestly. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a nerdy kid that loved sports and loved numbers. And in 1983, uh, I'm dating myself as to how old I am, but in 1983, uh, there was a book that was written called Rotisserie League Baseball. And so the man that founded it, that invented fantasy baseball, a guy named Daniel Okren, uh, he, he's a literary type. He was a former public editor of the New York Times, and he's edited and written a number of books. And he had all these sort of literary friends, you know, people that wrote for Sports Illustrated and Esquire and Wall Street Journal and so on and so forth. And so they used to get together and have lunch every Thursday as a group at a now defunct French restaurant in New York City called La Rotisserie. And, uh, and so he invented this game and, uh, and so that he basically brought it to, um, he brought it to his lunch group and they decided to form this fantasy baseball league. And they called themselves rotisserie league baseball because they all would have lunch at this restaurant, La Rotisserie. And so, uh, they wrote a book about it in nine, and it came out in this, the winter of 1983 and I devoured the book. And it's a really fun, interesting book, very well written. And it just made this league sound like so much fun, playing in a fantasy league, just made it sound like so much fun. And so uh, because I was a 14-year-old kid, like and I was reading, like I was a voracious reader. So, oh, it was a sports book? Cool. You know, and so I read this book and it sounded like so much fun. And I'm actually, believe it or not, at least back in the day, I was a really good tennis player. I was ranked in the state of Texas and had a lot of scholarship offers and, um, uh, to play D1 tennis. And, and so I was taking private lessons at the time. And I, I uh, walked up to my tennis lesson and my t- professional tennis coach was there talking with his best friend. And I walk and they're in this kind of weird language. And I'm like, are you guys talking about rotisserie league baseball? And they're like, you've heard of it. And I'm like, yeah, I just read the book. You guys have heard of it. And they're like, yeah, we're, we want to form a league. And I'm like, all right, I'm in. And so <laughs> They, you know, like so few people had heard about it. And this is, again, this is 1984, the spring of 1984. So you had to keep stats by hand. Like, you know, there was, you know, no, there, you know, no one had personal computers back then. You know, uh, the internet didn't really exist. The internet didn't exist, you know, in a way that, you know, the public could access it. And so um, you kept stats by hand and you had to, you know, you faxed in your, your moves. And I mean, I mean, it's all like really old school stuff. And, uh, but, you know, listen, it was a league filled with like 20 and 30 and 40 year old guys but they needed a 10th member. And I was, I was willing and I knew what it was. So, <laughs> you know, I was a 14 year old kid in the league with a bunch of adults and, um, but I fell in love with the game. So, and, you know, I've been playing fantasy sports ever since. So, I mean, I just turned 50. So whatever 50 minus 14 is, I was told there'd be no math. Right. <laughs> yeah. My 36th year of playing fantasy sports. And for those that are listening, there's a great 30 for 30 called Silly Little Game that features Daniel Okrent and all those originators of fantasy sports and rotisserie baseball. And it's so crazy, again, to keep talking about how this sport, this obsession has exploded during the decades. I love, Matthew, your writing style that you bring to a lot of your columns. And what I what I mean by that is 
You're not afraid to admit when you're wrong. You're not afraid to brag when you get something right. And you have this self-deprecating style about you. How did you develop that writing style? Well, I appreciate that. You know, um, it's something that I've honed uh, quite a bit. I, I, when I mentioned I was a voracious reader, I'm a voracious reader. And so, uh, you know, some of the influences I had when I was growing up as a kid, I think are probably surprising because they weren't sports writers. Right. I mean, Dave Barry, who's the humor columnist, he won a Pulitzer, uh, I, I, you know, wrote, I believe he still does, but for the Miami Herald. But, you know, I, I read a lot of Dave Barry as a kid, um, always really loved his style. Uh, there was an, a, a this is going to sound really weird, but um, there was a uh, there was a guy named Joe Bob Briggs, who was uh, he was a comedy writer. And he had this character named Joe Bob Briggs and he would write movie reviews of like drive in movies. Uh, back in, uh, you know, whenever I, when I was growing up in the 80s. Um, so, uh, you know, and there are writers like Carl Hyacin. And so I, I always gravitated towards writers that William Goldman is another writer, you know, some of the books he's written about Hollywood. I always gravitated towards writers that wrote in a very conversational style. And so I always tried to bring that um, uh, to my, uh, you know, to my writing. And um, I actually wrote, when speaking of Syracuse, I wrote for the Daily Orange. I was a humor columnist, not a fantasy sports columnist. I was a humor columnist uh, for the Daily Orange for two years, you know, while I was uh, at Syracuse. And, you know, that helped, you know, just have, you know, getting into that rhythm of writing a weekly column, like having a deadline. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're feeling funny or not, whether you have anything to talk about or not. Like, you know, come whatever it is, Wednesday at three o'clock, you have something you have to turn in you know, while you're at school. And so that was really important practice for me. You know, I went to Syracuse again, never, I never imagined doing this career. I came to Syracuse, as you mentioned, producing for electronic media. I thought I was going to be a TV and movie writer. That's what I came to Syracuse for. And the majority of the stuff that I did at Syracuse was in pursuit of that goal. You know, I worked at, at, at the time it was called UUTV, uh, which is, it's now uh, Citrus TV, the student TV station there. I wrote for the daily orange. Uh, I, uh, and then I worked at, uh, uh, Z89 WJPZ. I did, uh, as part of the crazy morning crew, um, <laughs> here. And so like, I, I did a bunch of, you know, multimedia things. Um, but that was my sort of, you know, the, you know, sports was just a passion, but I didn't think you could make a living at this, you know, kind of nerdy, silly game that I, I, I played for fun. Um, but, uh, my writing style developed that way originally as a humor columnist, for the Daily Orange and, you know, I would write, I used to write that way in high school too. I used to do a, I had a group of friends in high school and I would do a newsletter for us, which I, when I think back is just insane. Uh, so I've always loved writing and, um, uh, you know, and it's obviously been part of my life, you know, ever since I was a, a teenager. With, uh, with the advice piece of it, Matthew, it seems like a lot of times, you know, again, you're authentic with who you are, your columns, you don't get to the meat of the, the bone right away. You, you give some anecdotes and personal stories. I love the one recently about the, um, the jokes for Leroy when you were talking about Syracuse University and your connections back there. Did you, was it a conscious decision of yours to try to meld in your personality? Because I can imagine some people probably said, hey, give me the guys right away to start and bench versus having your anecdotes. Um, yes. So it was always that instinct to do it that way. And not some people, everyone. When I started, everyone was just like, what are you doing? Why are you talking about yourself? Who cares? Blah, blah, blah. Just tell me who to start and sit. Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, uh, a big influence of mine was, and I've written about this, is Howard Stern. So I'm a big Howard Stern fan. 
and you know, think he's uh, a brilliant broadcaster. And whether you are a fan of his content or not, it's not for everyone. It's edgy and it's adult, obviously. But even if you're not a fan of his content, the approach that he takes is really, really smart. And um, uh, really, really smart in terms of, and he was just, he sort of, he basically decided that he was the most interesting thing in the world and he was just going to make it all about him. And I thought, that as I sort of entered in 1999, as I entered the fantasy sports arena, and we can talk about that, um, how I got there. But as I, I got a job in 1999, writing for a website called Roto World, you know, I just answered a blind ad and I was working in Hollywood as a screenwriter, right? So I was working in Hollywood as a screenwriter, but I answered this, I saw this blind ad and I thought it would be fun to do on the side. So I decided to do that. And I, I sent them in an email and they, anyway, so, we can talk about that if you want, but whatever. I get hired to, to do a free column, in essence, for this, at the time, low-traffic fantasy sports website. Now it's a, it's a very big one. But um, I basically decided, like, you know, as I looked at it, I felt like all the advice out there was kind of the same. Start this guy, sit that guy, right? There's only so many players. There's a finite amount of players, right? And so there's, there's only so many di different ways you can say, like, whatever, you know, I um, – you know, I'm worried about DJ Moore this week, but, uh, you know, I think Carson Wentz has a big game or whatever it is. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm a big believer in sort of play the hand you're dealt and go with your strengths. And I thought, well, listen, I, you know, I'm pretty good with stats, but there's depth. Listen, I'm not Nate Silver, right? You know, and, um, and, I, and I have some contacts. I certainly have more now than when I started. But, you know, while I might have a couple of sources here and there, I'm not Adam Schefter. And while, you know, I'm pretty good at watching film and breaking it down, like I'm not a guy that I didn't play the game, right? There are ex-players, there are ex-coaches that certainly can break down X's and O's better than I can. I'm like, well, what can I do? I said, well, the one thing I know, the one thing I know that I can do better than anyone in the world is talk about myself. And so I decided to just, you know, that I thought that would be a way to brand myself and to stand out and just make it all about myself. And when I started doing that, people were like, oh, you're so egocentric. Oh, no one cares. Why are you talking? Just get to the start sits, dude. No one cares. No one cares. And I get that some to this day. But I will tell you that that is the thing that has made my career, that has made my life. You know, I appreciate you saying the, the one about, you know, this one's for Leroy, uh, the story I told about um, from a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, when I was a when I entered the student stand-up competition at Syracuse. But I have to tell you, when I meet fans on the streets, they never say to me, ah, oh, man, thank you. Thank you so much for like, you know, Darren Waller last year. Cause he was like this obscure tight end that I loved last year. And he ended up being a top five, uh, you know, fantasy tight end, you know, uh, you know, Hey, thank you for, you know, whatever, you know, you know, I avoided Jonathan Taylor because of you, you know, thank you very much. Or, you know, whatever it is. Right. You know, they never give me, they never say like, this is a pick that you had that worked out, you know, that I was very happy about, you know, thank you for DK Metcalf. I never get that. What I always get is, is I'll get, um, I'll get, hey man, the story about your daughter breaking her arms, or I love the story about meeting your wife or buying your first house, or you know the story about your heart attack or the bullying column, or like, it's always that. You know what I mean? They, they, it's always like, that's what they always bring up to me that resonated with them. That's what they remember is that, you know, and I think that, um, you know, even you, like we, you and I have never met, this is the first conversation we've had. And so, but what you're grabbing, you know, what you want to talk to me about is like, right, you're like, oh, you're, you know, you're self-deprecating and your style and this, it's not about like, 
you know, starts and sits and like, you know, hey, good call on Kyler Murray or whatever, right? You know what I mean? Like, well, so it's yeah. a relatability. It makes you somebody who's, you put yourself out there. You're not just some guy. Cause again, you can all go, there's so many places to go to get those rankings. But when you bring it back to your personal experiences, it feels like you welcome people in and yeah, you're going to get the occasional guy who follows you to a bathroom and asks you, right. do I start Daryl Henderson or do I start Devin Singletary this week? Right. But, you know, you're, you're going to get that because you put yourself out there. You make yourself vulnerable. Correct. The answer is Henderson, by the way, um, <laughs> between those two running backs this week, but but yeah, no, hundred percent. And it's like, it, it's very, very flattering, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative. And it does, it does feel like, I feel like I have a true connection with my fans and I think they feel the same way. You know, I, um, uh, ESPN did research. Like I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories. I once read a, I once read an interview with Huey Lewis, right? Huey Lewis in the news, right? So, you know, he's a bit of an older act, but you know, some of your audience may remember him, but like he, you know, back, back when I was in school, he was a huge, huge star and, you know, heart of rock and roll and want a new drug. And anyway, Huey Lewis in the news. And so I read an interview with Huey Lewis in the news and they asked him about his appeal. And Huey Lewis says, he goes, you know, the truth is, he goes, listen, we're good musicians, but there are better musicians than us. Like we're good songwriters. We can write catchy tunes, but like, we're not, you know, we're not amazing or anything like that. He says, I think our big appeal is that people look at us and like, hey, that's a bar band that made it. We're a bar band that made it, you know. We're like we're like a good that bar you go to, you know, that band you go see Friday night at the local bar that plays good tunes and you know gives it its all on its stage and isn't fancy, but it's just you know pure rock and roll. And we're a bar band that made it, you know. And I I've always thought about that and I always remember that. I and ESPN's done research on this and and what comes back a lot for them on on me is that people feel like like you know I'd be a good guy to have a beer with and I like to think that I am. You know what I mean? That I that I so I sort of. I believe the appeal, like what Huey was talking about, I feel like that's sort of the same with me, that I feel like I'm just, I'm a fantasy player that made it. You know, that I, I try not to talk down to my audience and be like, I'm so much smarter than you. I'm coming here from Mount Fantasy <laughs> down to deliver you the, the tablets of fantasy knowledge. I'm like, nah, guys, like, here's where we're at. Like, I think this, this is why I think this. You know, you tell me, like, you know, I try to be, like I said, I, I feel like hopefully, um, you know, that like I'm a fantasy player that that made it like that. I'm, I'm one of, you know, I'm I'm one of us. Right. We're, we're all sort of the same. And I just I'm a fantasy guy that made it. I want to revisit your time with Syracuse a little bit here before I let you get going. You sure. mentioned being a, a tennis player from Texas. How did you go from there to Syracuse? Was it just Newhouse or what was the story? It was two things. It was um, so first off. Yes, it was definitely Newhouse. Um I really wanted to be in. So I, when I was in high school, I spent my senior year of high school uh, being a, I was a rock and roll DJ. There was a, there was an oldie station in college. I grew up in college station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M university is. My dad's a professor there still to this day. And there was a, like a, you know, KTAM rock and roll oldies. It's a classic rock station. And so, and I got a job there. I got like a part-time job there, like as a DJ you know, doing weekends and stuff like that. And my, in my senior year of high school, I got the seven to midnight job doing, and I was like, I was the DJ, Matthew rock and roll Barry from seven to midnight. And so I really wanted to be in communications and I knew that I was a good enough tennis player to play college, but I wasn't in a good enough tennis player to go pro. And so I decided I didn't want to play tennis in college. I wanted to go and have a college experience and not, you know, and Syracuse doesn't offer a, um, you know, doesn't have a division one tennis team. 
at least, you know, they didn't at the time. And I still think they don't. But I went to my high school guidance counselor and I said, I want to be in communications. I'm doing this radio show. I want to, you know, t- you know, I want to be into TV and radio and film. And and uh, they opened up their book and whatever, whatever that year with that guidance counselor, whatever book he had, it said, uh, um, uh, you know, that Syracuse, the new house was the number one school for communications in the country. And I said, and that's where I'm going to try to go. So it was really the new house school that that uh, that drew me there. And uh, they didn't have a tennis team. And um, and so. Uh, so, yeah. And it was great. You know, um, uh, you know, it was interesting because the big communication school in, in, in the state of Texas is actually the University of Texas at Austin. And I went there and I went there and I they took me on the tour. I take the tour and they're like, hey, and here's the student TV station. And the guy was telling me, he goes, yeah, he goes. And, you know, when you're a junior, you actually get to, you know, use the equipment. And I'm like when you're a junior. You know, and then I went to Syracuse and they, you know, they like, they take me to UUTV and they're like, oh yeah, like you, you want to run a camera right now? Like let's, you know, and um, <laughs> you know, we need somebody to help us out with a boom mic, like here, grab this. Like, you know, it was night and day, you know, that like you, you at Syracuse was like, are you going to get a real hands-on experience of trying a bunch of different things in communications and you're going to get to do that immediately. So, um, so yeah, it was the new high school that brought me there. If you have to think back to a couple of memories uh, from Syracuse, what stand out as some of your favorites from your time as an undergraduate? Oh boy, that I can say on a podcast. Um, <laughs> so I signed up at UUTV again, which is now Citrus TV. And at the time, it was in a very small space. I've, I've since been back and it's really professional. I mean, it's really impressive what they have now. But back when I went, went there, it was just sort of like, you know, it was whatever they could get their hands on. And so like they only had, they had a small studio and they had two cameras in the studio. They only had two cameras. And most of the shows that they did then were what I like to call, you know, two hosts in a plant. Like it was literally like they did, like they did video countdown shows. They did talk shows. Um, they did shows where it was literally like two hosts sitting in chairs with a plant behind them, you know, and they would just talk directly to the camera or they would do things where they could take, you know, they had a new, they did a nightly news program. And they would, you know, but they would take a remote camera out. And I got there and I was like, I want to do a sitcom. And the, the people at UT were like, well, we, really? I don't know if we can do a sitcom. Like, um, you know, like, do you understand how much work that is? And that's a really hard undertaking to produce a fully scripted 30 minute sitcom, uh, you know, once every other week or whatever. And I said, I know, but I'd like to try. And I put, I went to, I ended up going to a bunch of classes at Syracuse. And I talked to the professor and like Doc Mason and a couple other professors, Professor Schoonmaker, let me come in front of their class and say, hey, guys, my name is Matthew Barry. I want to do a student sitcom at UUTV. We're meeting Saturday at three. Please come if you're interested and we'll figure it out. And so I did that. And we had like 50 kids at the first meeting. And um, it was amazing. And we, we did it. We ended up doing it. We called the sitcom Uncle Bobo's World of Fun. And it was about a low rent TV show kids host. Like we designed it that way. So like, oh, if you saw a boom in the shot or it looked low rent, it was supposed to. So, <laughs> And it was unbelievable because again, we only had two cameras. So in order to do a three, a, a three camera sitcom, which is what they normally are, we had to bring in a remote news camera and, and put on a tripod. So like every third shot was like grainier than the other two. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we only had enough room to build one set at a time. Like we had these bars and then you would, you would hang these flats from that you could design as the set. So it's like in most normal sitcoms, 
like you have sort of these, you know, standing sets and we didn't have the room to do that. So basically what we would have to do is like, okay, we're doing a, you know, this is Taylor's office. Taylor was the general manager of the station. So then basically we would set up Taylor's office and then we would, we would shoot it movie style. We would have to shoot like all three scenes in this, in the episode that were in Taylor's office in a row. And then we would break it down and then we'd set up the uncle Bobo set or whatever it was, or a restaurant or whatever set we were, you know, pretending. And um, so it was a lot of ingenuity and um, a lot of hard work. And we are the only time that we could get that much time because we needed all day to shoot it. You know, we needed all day to like uh, uh, to shoot a show that way. And so the only time that you could get the studio for that amount of time was Sundays. So asking college kids to show up Sunday at 9 a.m. <laughs> to like lift flats and, you know, um, and they did it. And we did 20 episodes over, you know, a two year period. It got syndicated to a bunch of other colleges through a college TV network. Um, it won a bunch of awards. Like it was great. And so that was just an amazing experience. And to this day, I'm in a fantasy football league with a bunch of the people that worked on Uncle Bobo. We started a fantasy football league that year and it's it's still going on. And so and I'm in I'm in communication with a bunch of them, you know, like um, uh, Chris Lindsay, who was my college roommate and Uncle Bobo himself, you know, was a groomsman at my wedding. Right. You know, and um, and me and those guys, we do a virtual poker game once a week. And so probably my favorite memory from Syracuse uh, is just all of that. This is the fun times and sort of the craziness and, you know, everything we did uh, to try to get that uh, that, you know, that show on uh, that show on the air. It was a it was a great time at Syracuse, you know. You mentioned the nostalgia and the fact that these people are in your wedding and the fantasy football leagues you still do. What does it mean to you, Matthew, to be an alum of Syracuse University? I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of the university. Um, I mean, I like, I mean, I don't know if this is just audio, so you can't see. So I'm at my desk, but like this sits on my desk. I got, you know, for people who can't see at home, I got a, a, an out of the orange, stuffed out of the orange, like sitting prominently on my desk. Uh, so it means a great deal, you know, I mean, and, and people know that I'm from Syracuse. So if you see any pictures of me on social media hanging out, like it's a lot of, I'm wearing Syracuse sweatshirts, Syracuse sweats, hat, Syracuse hat. I wear a lot of Syracuse gear. I'm proud of the, I'm proud to be, I guess for me, you know, like if you haven't survived those winters up there, you just don't understand. So I feel like there's, you know, sort of a family and a community of having been uh, at Syracuse, of being a Syracuse alumni. Uh, I'll tell you two things. Number one is, is that when I got out and, you know, I start, I had a whole career as a screenwriter. We've gone sort of all over the place here with this interview, but, you know, I had a career as a screenwriter first. So I graduated Syracuse, as you mentioned, producing for electronic media. I moved out to Hollywood with a bunch of Syracuse graduates, friends of mine, guys that had, all the guys that had done Uncle Bobo with me, right? We all moved out there and we didn't know anyone, right? It's, I mean, we're a bunch of, you know, dumb kids. And what I did is I went to the Syracuse alumni office and I like, I was like, give me a list of everyone that's in show business that went to Syracuse. And I sent them emails and letters and just said, hey man, I'm Syracuse class of 92. I'm a big fan of what you do on insert movie, sitcom, whatever it is they did. Big fan, you know, would you have 20 minutes, 30 minutes for a fellow alum to, you know, pick your ear and just get some advice. And a lot of them said yes. And the, and the ones that said yes, some of them were really nice and said, oh, you know who you should meet? You should meet this guy. And, you know, oh, and you need a job like my buddy's looking for somebody and like, you know, and so that network uh, was very important in terms of me starting out and continues to be important to this day. I'll tell you, I mean, um, 
you know, for me, I get hit up a lot and I don't have nearly the amount of time that I would love to, to give back, but you have a much better chance of, uh, of me, you know, getting on the phone with you or helping if you went to Syracuse. I, you know, the, when, when I see somebody that emails me from a Syracuse uh, email address or that they went to Cuse, you know, they go to the top of the pile. And I'm, I'm proud, I'm really proud to be part of, you know, we have such an amazing and incredible uh, alumnus uh, in the rank of broadcasters, right? In terms of broadcasting in general, you know, the, right, you know, Ted Koppel's of the world, obviously, but specifically sports broadcasting. You know, when you think about legends like Bob Costas or, or Marv Albert, right? And, um, and so uh, not that I'm anywhere near those guys, but just the fact that like, if, if there's a kid at Syracuse right now, that's going, I'm going to go to Syracuse. I'm going to the same school that, that Bob Costas went to that, you know, um, uh, that, that Marv Albert went to that, you know, Mike Tirico, right. The legend Mike Tirico went to, um, you know, and, oh, oh, and that Matthew Berry went to like, just the fact that I can be on that list, wherever I am on that list is really cool and special and amazing. It really is. And the power of the Orange Network, you mentioned it yourself. We look out for our own. We take care of our own. If you have tact and, uh, and ask in a nice way and try to get some advice, the doors are always open to Syracuse alumni. Matthew, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a crazy busy Friday uh, in the fantasy football world and the fantasy sports world in general. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm happy to come on anytime. Go Cuse. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>